Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 1st, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, So much to talk about today. Crazy. It's crazy how much there is to talk about. So let's start with uh, the delicious uh, story of the uh, MAGA guys showing up at a Glenn Youngkin for Governor event in Virginia on Friday uh, in Make America Great Again hats, and uh, turns out that this effort to connect Yunkin to Donald Trump and the Proud Boys or whatever uh, was a psyop engineered by the Lincoln Project, our friends uh, who made $90 million in 2020 as turncoat Republicans trying to get Joe Biden and Democrats elected because of the threat to the Republic and not coincidentally the contribution to their pocketbooks and wallets in the form of um, conning idiot, oh, you missed the central prop. A lot the, of money. The mega hats that wouldn't wouldn't yeah. have made as much of a ripple as it did if they were just generic Trump supporters tethered to the to the campaign. That wouldn't have mattered. What mattered was the tiki torches. That's why it was. I'm so sorry, you're right. And that's why. Yeah, it so they were, yeah. So they were carrying tiki torches, which of course you really do need at ten o'clock in the morning. And uh, the tiki torches, of course, intended in a to driving invoke... rain. <laughs> it was like right. a torrential yeah. downpour. Yeah. yeah, intending to invoke the Charlottesville Unite the Right uh, rally. Um, so uh, by by it was on Friday morning. By Friday evening, the Yunkin campaign was denouncing this um, uh, effort, uh, def- desperately trying to do damage control. And, uh, yeah, so Abe, uh, you, you enjoyed this. You enjoyed this immensely. I would say. I enjoy all the Lincoln projects work. I I think they're terrific. (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, for listeners out there who, who didn't get my, you know, uh, uh, sarcasm there or, or irony rather. Um, I think they're terrific in the, in the way, you know, that it's fun to watch people, you know, step on a rake or walk into a pole when they're on their phone or something. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think, look, there's a lot of discussion about this in terms of how underhanded it is, what a failure, uh, it was. Both of these are true. It's, it's disgusting and it's dishonest. And, um, obviously it, um, backfires, um, in a major way in terms of uh, McAuliffe's race. Um, I think there's another issue here which is that it completely sucks the seriousness and gravity out of the the case not just the liberal case but just you know the the the, the american concern over things like charlottesville and january 6th um it really exposes that so much of this activism is theater and that so many of these very serious things that that have happened over the past few years that are worrisome to varying degrees um, are just being completely co-opted as political props. Um, and and you you have to wonder how much any of the people who care so much about the fate of the Republic because of the Trumpians and because the 
fate of our democracy and white supremacy and and all the rest of it, um, what they're really in it for and, and what they're using all these things for, um, because this is not serious. This is a way of minimizing for your for your own um, sort of personal use and satisfaction some some things that I do think are quite serious. Well, it only became this sort of metaphor in retrospect. That was the cleanup when this Wait, first which, happened, which, when it which first this, broke, which which this, this? event. This oh, event okay. and the the overtone of being sort of a, an analogous, a metaphorical attempt to tether the Republican Party and Glenn Youngkin to racist and racial elements within the GOP. Initially, when it was promoted by the uh, McAuliffe campaign and its and its members, the members of the high-ranking members of the McAuliffe campaign, they they talked about it like it was very serious. Like this was, these were uh, white supremacists, in, you know, in earnest coming out in support of Glenn Youngkin. Wow, can you believe this? Look at this. You know, that they didn't they didn't say that this was some sort of an analogy and that Hadley in a like uh it was an allusion to to forces that are you know, bubbling beneath the surface of the Republican camp. They were like, this is it. This is this is all that these guys really want. That they're, they're white supremacists. Here you go. And then it exploded on the tarmac. And then it became, oh, that we're only talking about this in sort of a you know grand 30,000 foot perspective. Yeah. That... Cleanup. They wanted to make this, you know, a real event that people would swallow, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, his, one of McAuliffe's chief communications people called it disqualifying when they were still, you know, treating it with the seriousness they felt it deserved. This, And then when it turned, and many members of the media picked up on that and repeated those statements, when it became clear it was cosplay, silence. And that's actually, it says, tells you just as much about their, about the world. Uh, someone who's legitimately earnest about it, about the seriousness of white supremacy would would say, this is this hoax is ridiculous. This is terrible. We distance ourselves from it. It took them a long time to even get mildly close to saying that. But it's important to note they they wanted this to take off. They wanted this to be something that was. And I will say the other thing: they're not the racist dog whistle has become the hail mary of McAuliffe's campaign. He's using it to claim that Glenn Youngkin wants to ban all books written by black women. Not true. He what he's making the race the final thing, all while pointing the finger at Republicans and claiming they're the ones making everything about race. It's, it's very Hall of Mirrors esque. Well, he's can gotta... I add that this doesn't make any sense. Like it just. <laughs> The the rationale for this sort of thing is the guilt by association uh, a gimmick, you know, like, why would you why do you associate yourself with a campaign that is, also has these associates? That should have been pretty definitively disproven by how deplorables exploded and backfired on Hillary Clinton. So the political rationale doesn't make a whole lot of sense here unless you're really online, like you're you're so steeped in these narratives that consume the conversation on social media and are irrelevant to most voters, only then would you be able to work yourself up into thinking that this was in a, an effective tactic, much less a, like a sane tactic. Otherwise, it's just it's completely rooted in in this a mania that that is reinforced on social media. OK, I'm not sure I agree with with you guys in this sense, which is that you have to take the McAuliffe campaign's behavior uh, as the given and try to figure out why they're behaving the way they're behaving. And I think the reason they're behaving the way they're behaving is that they're seeing a wild enthusiasm gap and a turnout crisis among African-Americans and they need them to vote. And so the message that they have decided, they were going at suburban liberal women and all that by saying that Yunkin was Trump. And they rode that and rode that and rode that until it's basically a message that people now know 
in Virginia, if that's going to affect you, if that's going to pull you to the polls, that's been six months of McAuliffe's chief message, anti, anti-Yunkin message. The last two weeks have all been about racist dog whistling. So they saw a vulnerability in among suburbanites and went at it to say, if you vote for him, it's like voting for Trump. Remember, you came out in such hot, big numbers voting against Trump. You can do it again for Yunkin. It's a bank shot. I, you know, Right now, you'd have to say, based on all the evidence, that it probably hasn't worked. Um, and then it's they like- have all this other data that suggests that African Americans are not enthusiastic about voting. And so they have pulled this arrow out of the quiver and uh, and have just gone at it like crazy. So they are, you know, it's a Band-Aid. When, when, you, when you figure out what the messages are and what the closing messages are, that's how you figure out what the campaign thinks its own vulnerability is. In the same way that Youngkin is attempting to, um, has been attempting to deal with a vulnerability of his own where the anti- uh, school boards and um you know populist education message he is matching with a promise to spend a lot of money on schools so there's a bifurcated message there he is going at the people who have said enough we can't take it we can't take this uh, liberal brainwashing of our kids but if he leans too hard on that he risks uh, alienating the Biden voters who may cross over to vote for him in Northern Virginia because they're so impatient on COVID and taxes and don't and think McAuliffe is uninspiring or whatever. So you look at Young and you see he's like, I've gone as far as this. I, I, this is fantastic, this education thing, but I've got to twin it with a promise to spend a lot on education. And McAuliffe is Youngkin's Trump. Oh, and he's a racist. And it's Charlotte. Remember, there's a trial in Charlottesville right now. You African-Americans, you better go out and vote for me. I mean, I think that but that that's even makes my point worse. Right. I mean, because because you're 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 treating the idea of uh, racism in the U.S. purely as this um, this sort of um, scary uh, totem to wave before black people who are going to who are going to freak out. I mean, which is it's, the, it's but- extraordinarily unserious and um denigrating way to way to way to go about it and it, it's weirdly the mirror image of what republican campaigns have done in the past to to rally their white voters right this is always the accusation that the, the you know the willie horton ad right this is the idea that you scare white people about black people and then they'll run to the polls now they're the democrats are trying to scare black people to get them to run to the polls for democrats it's bizarre but by the way it, it reminds me of you know uh biden saying that mitt romney was going to put you all back in chains right, right. it's not it's not new. Well, so there's a playbook. And the question is, does the playbook work? Because, of course, you have these weird cross currents where polling shows that if you ask African-Americans how they feel about defunding the police, they want more police. They don't want less police. It's 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 white liberal, you know, pissant progressives who haven't ha- who haven't faced a moment's danger from crime in their entire lives. Um, who want there to be no cops because less less the cops stop them when they're you know high driving or something, uh, and now we have, you know so but McAuliffe and this I guess gets to Noah's point 
McAuliffe and the Democratic establishment, just like all of us, is is so they're so lured by the siren song of social media, social media being dominated not by conventional voters, but by highly engaged people who are attempting to influence the discussion in ideological ways, rather than coming up with a kind of message that might make African-Americans enthusiastic that isn't simply about racism. It is a white person who thinks that what black people only care about is racism. And so if there is an enthusiasm problem, it may be that all you're doing is, look, look, Ralph Northam, the governor who, you know, everybody assumed was going to have to resign because of this, these photos supposedly showing him in blackface. Northam put his head down and just kept working and governing, and he's got a 52 or 53% approval rating. He has an approval rating in Virginia that is 10 points higher than Biden's. What does that tell you? It tells you that African Americans do not decided that they would they were fine with Northam. It was only it was white panic moral panic liberals who said well you can't wear blackface you have to resign my my guess is that this is twofold one of which is it's like it was in 1982 what's the matter with you like what what didn't people do wrong in 1982 and the other is like i mean if you want a really cynical version would be like yeah you're all crackers <laughs> you know you you've all done you're all in blackface so I, I you know don't you know switch one for the other i don't care who you are like that's that's a reason if 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 that were the if that were the way i was supposed to vote based on whether you know a white guy in college went in blackface you know i couldn't vote for anybody ever so there is a kind of lack of sophistication in dealing with this very critical constituency which is that you treat them as though it's like going to Jews and saying, as Trump does, I like Israel, you know, vote for me. It's like, that's not the only, though I think that is a very important thing and the Jews, you know, don't pay sufficient attention to this, but that is not a governing presumption or concern of a lot of voters, uh, Jewish voters in the United States. But you go to them because it's like, oh, I got this one thing I can target you with, racism you know, Israel, whatever. And the vulgarity of it shows a lack of sophistication in trying to reach a core audience or a core constituency or whatever it is you, you want to call it. Anyway, what's really enjoyable about it is this, is not that the Lincoln Project has been humiliated because it's been humiliated before, right? I mean, um, John uh, Weaver was, you know, was, was, was uh, being uh, sexually aggressive with uh, staffers and um, uh, then it was covered up. And, you know, while they're talking about, you know, the probity and seriousness and politics and all that. Um, and then this fact that they raised $90 million and literally had no positive effect on the election whatsoever. Um, so, you know, it's just the exposure of the con and the fact that, you know, you're anyone who gave the money is a dope. Like, it's like, you know, it's like you want to make fun of people going to Trump University. Anybody who gave the Lincoln Project money was being dumber than anybody who thought that they could get a degree from Trump University. Here's another one that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, though. I mean, we, we pretty much acknowledge now that there are pretty high ranking members of the, of the McAuliffe campaign participated in this stunt. But why for, a, I mean, even, even if we think they have a contractual relationship with Lincoln Project, and I don't think they do. Why would they 
go to work for the Lincoln Project in this stunt? And then why would the Lincoln Project set itself on fire and literally jeopardize its all its relationships with its grassroots donor base, which is the only reason why anybody in that organization is in this game to begin with, is to make money. Why would they set themselves up to be the fall guy if Youngkin wins? Easy, easy fall guy. Say, oh, you know, this last minute hit is what blew it for us. Even if that's not true, and it wouldn't be true, it's still a very convenient narrative that absolves Democrats of any responsibility for this loss and throws it all on a, on a pretty distasteful organization that they can throw overboard anyway. Why would anybody do this? I don't understand why any of this happened. Because they thought it was a, a inventive idea that would work. What they forgot was the fact that social media makes these things all but impossible. I mean, how long did a tape take for individual, you know, like lunatics on the right uh, on Friday to zero in on the photographs and identify Democratic activists among the, you know, each person in the in the MAGA crowd? Okay, but uh, as, we, I, some, as some Democratic political activist, including the black guy, which well, was I was going to say, we touch. have to we have to point out the hilarity of the fact that clearly even this white supremacist cosplay had to go through the diversity initiative treatment, and so there had to be a woman, and there had to be a minority, and then there, but they're all they're all white supremacists. So I mean, that's for most people was the trigger of like, hmm, this seems odd. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, things are so strange today. You, you do actually encounter anomalous stuff almost like that these days. You know, well, it's there, true. There, there, are, it, there yeah. are minority proud boys and, you yeah. know, whatnot. Yeah, it's, uh, that's true. But it's it, it it is still it was still sort of comic. And the fact the fact that it never occurred to the people who were doing this, that they were quite easily identifiable since, in fact, they were identified in like five minutes, you know. Uh, it, you know, this was some this was some weird uh, updated version of um, of that that guy in Atlanta typing over the uh, email or, you know, whatever it was, the letter uh, about Bush's National Guard visit and discovering that it was Times New Roman, a font that didn't exist in 1972 when the letter was supposedly written. Um, you know, that that took a little while. This took, you know, an hour. I mean, to identify people's faces, you know, it's like you can't do that. Uh, you can't. It's not going to work. You know, uh, if you cast actors in commercials, people are going to recognize them. If you cast, you know, if you put Democrats in MAGA hats, you think that you think that they're not, not going to be found out. I mean, that's just stupid. But you know what's you know, but not stupid? What's not stupid is our friend, our friends at Act, the Acton Institute and their Unwind podcast. Look, refugees and border walls, woke celebs and socialist chic, social engineering and COVID lockdowns. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and the world. That's why it's time for Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, uh, Reverend Robert Sirico, excuse me, Sirico, Dr. Stephen uh, Barrows, and uh, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Act and Unwind will explain the news of the week through Acton Institute's unique perspective connecting good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote a shape, uh, uh, to shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Act and Unwind, Visit Acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, 
or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's actin.org slash commentary to subscribe. Abe, I interrupted you. Sorry. Well, I just want to make one last point about this. That's that's actually not delicious or funny. Um, to stage uh, just a, a blatant hoax like this at a time when everyone is calling absolutely everything a hoax and no one believes in anything that's actually going on um, is very bad for the country. It's, it just takes us further down the rabbit hole. Um, as much as we enjoy, you know, the, the, the self own. Um, so shame on them in that regard. That is, that is a very deep point. I mean, and the whole point about political stunts is that, um, they become legendary among political professionals. There's famous presidential prankster, Dick Tuck, and this one and that one and the other one. And, you know, these guys are all sitting around like writers in a sitcom, uh, writer's room, uh, giggling at their, you know, mischievous ideas of how to, you know, change the subject or use, you know, use hilarious communications ideas. And, uh, and there, and, and there are no grownups in the room. Like the, the part of the point here is that there's something unbelievably sophomoric about the Lincoln project, members of which, you know, ran presidential campaigns, right? I mean, uh, Steve Schmidt and John and the aforementioned John Weaver, uh, Rick Wilson, who did a lot of, you know, uh, has done a lot of stuff. These are guys who are supposedly like, you know, um, wise men of the Republican Party. And basically they're like they're like frat boys doing lines of coke, giggling at each other's idiocy and thinking that it's cleverness. Um that's that's another thing. Like, you know, Wilson wrote a book called Everything Trump Touches Dies. Well, it turns out that everything never, you know, the, these never Trumpers touches my, my touch might die also. Um, you know, uh, obsession, uh, being obsessed with Trump and either on the positive or the or the ultimately negative sphere has seems to have terrible consequences for people's basic political sanity. I would say moving on. Uh, so we, we, we've, we've, uh, we've handled that. And, uh, what else did I want to talk to you about? Cause, um, cause there was, there was so much going on. Okay. Somebody let's else. Let's go Brandon. What? Oh. The... Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> I was going, let's go Brandon, but. Oh, you know. let's go Brandon. Let's go Brandon. Okay. So. Robert De Niro comes out at the Tonys and says, F Trump, right? That's great. He gets celebrated. People cheer. There's a standing ovation. Uh, people twist uh, F Biden into let's go Brandon for complicated reasons, right? As a kind of, uh, and then it becomes sort of code word for saying something negative about Biden. You know what we call that? That's like, that's actual political cleverness and and humor and funniness it's like we're not going to say this about the president but we're going to say it in a way we're going to we're going to say something in a way that indicates that you will all know what we're actually saying without saying it that's what euphemism is that's what a that's what a clever euphemism does and the fact that it went viral so fast noah you pointed out at some point that the top five songs on itunes were all song versions of let 
was it Christine? Christine Let's is go. our resident pop culture expert. Okay. Oh gosh, we're we're doomed if that's true. <laughs> Let's go, Brent. Let's go, Brandon. Songs were the, the top five songs on on iTunes, and then you have this thing where some pilot is making an announcement on Southwest Airlines, and he says, and in conclusion, let's go, Brandon. If you went on Twitter, you saw anti-terrorism experts saying, how could we not be sure that a person who says this won't crash a plane into the Pentagon? So this, can I jump in? Because this is where the debate went off the rails. There was, as you recall, a woman photographed flipping off Trump's motorcade when Trump was president. She ended up getting fired when she was identified. And, uh, and there's a lot of calls for firing this pilot for the same reason. Now, private companies have the right to terminate employees if they violate the terms of their employment. And if that includes how you present yourself in public, and if that reflects badly on the company you work for, they can be terminated. I thought that was excessive in the case of the woman who flipped off Trump. And I think it would be excessive in the case of a, of a pilot. Disciplinary action seems more appropriate. However, when the woman who flipped off Trump was fired, she became a national hero. She was interviewed by the media. She was seen as this incredible victim. She was given book deals. She was praised as a hero of the resistance. What do you think is going to happen to the Southwest pilot if he gets fired? Now, he might become a hero to the to the right, but the idea that the mainstream culture will embrace this guy as a truth teller is is ridiculous. And I think it's that 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 contradiction in how these cases are treated. Instead, a pilot's being called a terrorist because he's expressing a political view as a pilot, which personally, I, again, I don't think he should be doing because he's flying people on that plane who are Republicans and Democrats. So, you know, he should just keep him keep his political views to himself. But the way he's being treated and the calls for his, you know, basically, you know, he, he's a potential terrorist. You're a potential terrorist if you don't like the direction the country's going. That's a lot of terrorists in this country in that case. I mean, I, I'm also struck by the uh carol markowitz said on twitter that um every now and then you get this sense of the bubble that liberals live in which is to say that um, every day of your life if you're a conservative you are uh particularly if you live in a blue state uh you are you have to live through people at your workplace or people at your school or whatever um openly uh expressing political views in strange places that annoy the hell out of you and you live with it and liberals do not have that experience you know uh if you're a professor at harvard nobody nobody except you know when things are surfaced for your outrage and horror no one in your daily life expresses these opinions at all except to say that biden uh, isn't left-wing enough and isn't spending enough money and isn't being progressive enough. And so you come to the conclusion that any expression of these opinions is so unbelievably offensive uh, that it it tips someone into being a person who, you know, took bear spray and broke a window and jumped into the, you know, jumped into the Capitol building on January 6th. That's part of it. <clears throat> but I think another part of it, probably one that they can't admit to themselves, is that they don't have any control over this. And that's incredibly frustrating that it's become pop cultural and a, a self you know, perpetuating phenomenon that is that is cool. I mean, God help us, because I think this is really crass and kind of obnoxious and it doesn't it's not politically effective messaging to me. It's just, you know, ch childish in my view. Nevertheless, uh, it's become hip because the self serious censors who command uh, the, all the levers of cultural power can't stop it, and it's driving them crazy. I, I you know, I, I'm serious. I think it's kind of funny. 
I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it's sophomoric for a pilot to say, let's go, you know, the pilot can say nothing, but there is something funny about a euphemism going, going viral um, that literally takes um, what was a vulgar and obscene message and abstracts it into something, translates it into something banal. That's, that's witty. I, I mean, it's, it's a little vulgar. I mean, it's, it's like it's sort of once removed, you know, that that's I mean, that's right. that's but that's that, the but, issue. Yeah, but that's what you it, vulgarity. But they, had once, to, they had to incept this into existence because the vulgarity wasn't accepted in places outside of, you know, very tight knit, culturally conservative. Uh, but that venues, but, like NASCAR and what have you. And that, then they had to abstract it. In order for there it is to no day, but there is no day. That's your exact point. That's what virality means. There okay, was but the, no but, they. Nobody incepted anything. It kind of happened organically. Well, initially right. there were there were the F. Joe Biden chants. Well, but yeah, the no, origin but, story, no, the reporter that. misheard. The reporter did one of two things. Either she legitimately misheard and just tried to say something that was PG enough to say on camera, or she heard F. Joe Biden and she couldn't process that. And so she turned it into something that was less right. offensive. So we should we we need to explain this that when when at a NASCAR event, the crowd started chanting. F. Joe Biden, the commentator, the TV commentator said, I think they're saying, let's go, Brandon, referring to this NASCAR driver who is kind of like an underdog and who had his first successful race ever. So there was something kind of, yeah, ingenuous and comic and bizarre about the fact that apparently it was very clear what the crowd was chanting. And then this kind of wide-eyed reporter said, or not reporter, but just like, you know, TV uh, announcer, um, you know, yeah, turned it into something, but and then, it, but it went viral, which means nobody did anything. It happened on its own. Like there was no systematic creation of the let's go Brandon chant everywhere. It just but I, happened. But that's why I, I want to return to Noah's point. Cause, because I love it. Um, if liberals start to sense that they're losing control of the culture, I think we can expect to see a level of hysteria that's going that's going to make our heads explode. Um, there's there's let's go Brandon. There's the extraordinary success of Greg Gutfeld's show uh, uh, on Fox. Um, there there are all sorts of bubbling up indications that um, progressives don't have a vice grip on American popular culture now, and that is absolutely terrifying for them. Uh, I think uh, the 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 success of Dave Chappelle and Netflix not not taking him off the air is another one. Um, this but is a moment of panic for them. I I I just I I don't think that you know terrorism expert Juliet Kayyem is looking at this and saying you know oh my God we're losing we're losing control of the culture. No, it uh, wouldn't be she, it wouldn't be a, a conscious right. effort on their part. It would be a completely unconscious instinctive reaction to the ground shifting beneath their feet and it would manifest in ways that are that don't make a lot of sense because it is completely irrational. Let me just tell you one of these, you know, stories from my checkered past. So in like 1999 something like that, um a friend of mine in New York had a dinner party and I went to the dinner party and um uh Hillary Clinton was running for Senate and I said something like, well, you know, you know that Hillary would never be in this position if she weren't, you know, <clears throat> if she hadn't been married to the president. And uh, 
and uh, hadn't sort of gained public sympathy because of her, because of his infidelity against her. And this person at this New York Upper West Side dinner party said, you can't say that. And I said, I literally said, what do you mean I can't say that? I just said that. Or, or, you know, are the cops bursting through the door to arrest me? And he said, you can't say that because in his lifetime, nobody had ever said such a thing in his presence. You know? And so it's like this, it's like any <clears throat> any kind of liberal or democratic effort to analyze the success of Fox News or of talk radio or of this or that. On the one hand, they say, uh, this is proof that, you know, the, the country is sick and deformed and in terrible shape. And in the other, it's more like, oh, there's got to be a conspiracy, you know, the Cokes are working with you know, uh, the F, you know, the Trump FCC to do X, Y, or Z, something like that. No sense that what's going on here is an alternate culture that, I mean, it's not like there's a new, this is new, you know, Trump himself is a representative of the alternate culture, uh, that rose and took over the Republican party that rose out of, you know, wrestling and reality television and, and late night commercials and appearing on and appearing on uh Art Bell and and uh and Fox and Friends in the morning and all of that and and so this culture has 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 always existed and they uh, and it has has great power and maybe it'll get more powerful but but again I think of all of all of its products this let's go Brandon as a kind of um I don't know signaling to each other that we're all in this we don't like biden thing together is uh which the polls the, also reflect the polls reflect let's go brandon i mean maybe not yeah. in that strong a wording but but a lot you know of the who country I feel bad for who there's brandon? a kid somewhere named brandon <laughs> in you know like a deep blue county who yeah wants to play soccer and no one can cheer him on no everybody's uh, cheering him on the whole world is cheering on Brandon. Well, not if he's in not, not if not if he's in you know Loudoun County, or or in, excuse me in Fairfax County or something like that. I don't know. Look, um, you've heard me and us talking for you know months about our, our friends at the Bonson Group, that a multi-billion-dollar wealth advisory firm that puts out Dividend Cafe and the DC Today and obsesses over the integration of markets and policy. Well, their chief investment officer, David Bonson, has is just publishing a book that may have just a little something for everybody. It's called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Written as a sort of daily economic devotional, David provides commentary on 250 economic principles featuring quotations from from famous economists and uh, and and ageless thinkers and draws the reader into a deeper understanding of the foundational beliefs and applications around free enterprise. You don't have to be a PhD economist to understand this. It is written for those who instinctively favor a free market system but want to better understand why David's book There's No Free Lunch provides a faith-based worldview defense of free enterprise and does so with 250 single-page entries that will help you reflect, discern, and understand. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths from our friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group. You won't be sorry. Available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all good bookstores everywhere. This book, like the Bonson Group itself, is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, 
So uh, we we have this disagreement on Let's Go, Brandon. I'm amused. You guys are horrified. Uh, uh, which is which is fun, I think. Uh, no, I think it's horrified. funny. Yeah. Not horrified. Okay, I not think horrified. it's. I like the reaction. Just... It's fun to watch the reaction to Let's right. Go, Brandon. Yeah. Right. Okay. Even if we wouldn't I... let our kids talk that way. Okay. Um. So you know there is this. I don't know what it is. Fifty thousand word takeout in the Washington Post on. January 6th, before, during, and after, this granular 80 reporters, you know, tens of thousands of words and all of that. And uh, I've read most of it. And I have to say that I was a little underwhelmed, speaking as someone who thought that Trump should have been impeached or removed from office for his behavior, uh, you know, uh, encouraging uh, the events of January 6th and being horrified by people retroactively saying that it was just a tourism event and things like that. It was an insurrectionary a storming of our capital uh, in, in a way that you know has never happened before in American history. It was disgusting, appalling, and a nightmare, and uh, and something that deserves to be investigated um, and uh, and studied. But uh, I just thought that this that it didn't really deliver the goods, except in one area, one surprising area. I want to share with you, which is that uh, military. This is uh, from early on in the piece. Quote: Military officials took fateful steps to avoid being. In, entangled in domestic unrest, star, scarred by the president's efforts months earlier to use the military to quash racial justice protests. General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy sought to require that only senior Pentagon leaders could approve changes to missions for National Guard soldiers. In the end, that posture contributed to the hours-long delay in getting the Guard to the Capitol to help restore order. Um, the, the piece later on goes into much greater detail about how the guard was stationed a mile away, they weren't allowed to have guns, and all of this was because Milley was convinced that the president could issue a counter order to, say, the, you know, the mayor or whoever it was running the National Guard and take over control of the National Guard and order the National Guard to storm the Capitol and, you know, arrest Mike Pence or, you know, burn the ballots or something like that. So Millie, whom we know from the from the Bob Woodward, uh, Bob Costa book, you know, fashioned himself the savior of our democracy from the evils of Trump, created this entire uh, paranoid narrative about how the National Guard had to be prevented from being involved on January 6th, lest Trump turn it to his own ends. And therefore, the National Guard, the D.C. National Guard that could have created a phalanx to prevent the storming of the Capitol was nowhere near the Capitol and couldn't be moved because only he and the defense and the acting defense secretary or something could actually activate them under under well, this policy. Right. The acting defense secretary and the commander in chief of the armed forces. Uh, I, I'm I, this is a significant development. It's the most important question that still stands from that day. Why it took so long to deploy the National Guard. <clears throat> but I don't see how this absolves the president. I don't trust Mark Milley at all. And I'm willing to believe that his paranoia contributed to this significantly. But where was the defense secretary and the president in those three and a half hours? Oh, no, no, no. I am not absolving Trump. I'm saying that of all the revelations in this piece, a lot of which go to the idea that there was all this chatter about January 6th, about incredible acts of violence and weapons being brought to D.C. and all of this. That um, that there was concern at the FBI uh, that they were not allowed. It was it would be unconstitutional for them to investigate this too deeply because people were having conversations in open fora, constitutionally protected speech 
um, that uh, aspirational, talking about saying things like, you know, we ought to go and, you know, take over the country uh, does not raise, does not rise to the level of being able to intrude on people's private communications, even if they happen in a public setting. Is that a bad thing? I don't, you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. The piece seems to characterize it as a bad thing that the FBI is being cautious about, in, you know, about spying on Americans, which it is not supposed to do. It is not supposed to spy on Americans without a warrant. Um, and remember also that we had had a couple of other pro-Trump rallies in D.C. prior to January 6th, which had which had at least locally gotten everyone all wound up. I mean, local listeners were like, oh, the fascists are coming. Don't let them book a hotel room. You know, there was a lot of there was a very high law enforcement presence in certain parts of the city during those weekends. Um, and it fizzled. I mean, there were some altercations, uh, largely fights between, you know, activists on one side and proud boy types on the other. But and one day in particular, more violent than the rest. But they weren't as bad as they had been ginned up into uh, believing they would be. So that likely also informed law enforcement's decisions about the January 6th chatter and about whether or not this was going to be a serious uh, threat. Um, I do think. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just want to say if 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 this were about um, investigating American Islamists, the attitude about FBI caution would be very different uh, from, right. from, the, from the very same people. I just want to say I'm, I'm fascinated by the Millie thing because. He was clearly consumed with the idea that Trump was going to stage a military coup. Uh, don't forget, even after the the January 6th insurrection, he's the one who sent out this letter to to the military in mass saying uh, this is a reminder that you serve the Constitution. You don't serve uh, the president. You don't, you don't serve one man. You're not, you know, sort of reminding them, like, come on, guys, don't 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 coup on us here. I mean, that's now a. To have someone in that position, have that be his primary concern, it's a, it's a, it's a wild level of, of, I've got to say it, paranoia. Well, I mean, it's a Rorschach test, right? Because there are people who listening to this podcast would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it was proved. Like Trump did tell people, come to, come to Washington. It'll be wild. He said, let's walk down to the Capitol. You know, I mean, um, and they would say, well, you see, Millie, Millie's concerns were well-founded. Um, how do we know that we don't know what was going on precisely in, inside Trump chamber? Maybe Millie was right because maybe Trump would have turned the National Guard into into a into an attacking force on the Capitol. Um, I don't think so. And I, I think that, you know, everything that we read about this suggests a, a kind of um, deranged fecklessness on on Trump's behalf and, and, and a, um, and I will say uh, verging on psychopathy, like a, uh, an adoration of sort of, um, violence and craziness being, uh, conducted on his behalf, uh, even though I don't think that he, the aim was anything but science fictional, you know, that Pence had made it clear he had no power to do what John Eastman said he should do in his memo, or he had no power to do anything except accept the accept the elector ballots, and that was it. And so there was no point to this. There was no purpose to this except to satisfy some kind of bloodlust on Trump's part, which is terrifying. And as I say, is why he does, he should have been he he was impeached and should have been removed from office, even though there was only two weeks left to go in office as a message to him and to everybody. And of course that didn't happen. Uh, one thing that would have happened had that happened would have been that he couldn't have run for president again. And, um, foolish Republicans might have been more farsighted in, in 
in agreeing to his removal or impeachment or removal on the grounds that um, his continued presence in the Republican Party uh, endangers the future of the Republican Party, but that didn't happen. So, um, can I can I that, just add yeah. one other thing about? I mean, I haven't read the whole Washington Post series, but I've read a fair amount of it. The the lack of attention to what we know just from human behavior of mob psychology, right? It really doesn't take that many people to stir up a a, a crowd. And we know this from, you know, recent uh, events in, you know, a few summers ago. We know this from history. And and I think that there is a there's a tendency to want this to be about Trump staging a coup without having without thinking about how these things actually develop as a matter of human behavior. And and it's terrible and it's frightening. And and I mean, Trump was happy to see what was going on, clearly, but it's not as if he gave Mark it, he didn't give explicit marching orders, but you don't need to for a crowd that comes angry and riled up, right? A crowd angry and riled up will start taking matters into their own hands with very, very deleterious consequences, which definitely happened here. Not to Look, excuse I mean, that again, but like no. the ideological motivation doesn't have to exist for every single person who picks up a pitchfork. Right. I mean, quite the opposite. I would say that um, one of the things that saved the Republic, uh, if Trump had been the person that liberals imagined he was, we really might have faced a constitutional crisis and a coup if he were not a sort of sower of chaos and a and a and a wild incompetent, uh, even at getting his own way. Um, if he if he had managed, you know, the Ukraine the efforts to figure out what's going on in Ukraine or you know with Hunter Biden and 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 whoever um, in a in a more effective less preposterous way he wouldn't have been impeached the first time either that trump's character personality and actions suggest an undisciplined cosplaying president and then he there was all this cosplaying of an insurrection uh in the sense that they had no plan they had no purpose they had no marching orders they didn't know what they were doing or where they were going so much so that they got misdirected by the Capitol policeman inside the Capitol who said, oh, you're going to the Senate chamber, come this way. And he led them in the other direction. And they were, you know, the the the, the mob was so ignorant that it did not, not that they should have, but, you know, real coup plotters would have known which way to go once they entered the building. Like that would be, you know, uh, and so the whole point about him is that, you know, he would have been at once, he, Trump, never got his way the way he ever wanted to get his way because he had no follow through or discipline or foresight or, or, or a sense of purpose as president in a way that a person who d does seem to have some real questions about, you know, democratic systems and all of that might, might have deployed in his own, you know, to his own benefit. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure Trump hasn't read his Trotsky or Elias Kennedy and doesn't really understand the dynamics of crowds. And I'm, I'm giving him that. But the only reason why this is a live issue is because of the right. The right is keeping January 6th alive. The right is creating some sort of a weird secular religion around it. The right is refusing to investigate it. The right is establishing a, uh, this narrative where the people who are participants in this event were somehow victimized or martyred in the case of uh, Ashley Babbitt. Um, it's all their fault. So to the extent that you have any of this becoming an issue in you know, 5,000 word investigations and people on the left talking about it. As I wish it were 5,000 words. 50,000, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't it's even know how long event. it was. I mean, this is yeah. all a, a creation of, of 
right-wing political culture and a response to it. So I, oh, I, I, I don't to... agree. I, I don't think that's right because I think that this project is eight months in the making and it wasn't that the right immediately created this martyrology like the first couple of weeks after this happened. You know, everybody said that it was bad. It was bad. It happened. It was terrible. And, you know, it was, it was shame and a terrible thing. And the martyrology happened afterwards. Um, and uh, first there was a kind of defensive, like refusal to participate in the commission, you know, the creation of the commission on the grounds that it would just be used against Republicans. It was just a po political stunt by Democrats to use it against Republicans. Um, foolish in my view, but okay. And so you move onward to then when you don't quash these things uh, systematically, let's say, including like the martyrology, then it rises up as it will. Exactly. And so on the one hand you have this, and on the other hand you have whatever this thing is that Tucker Carlson's going to do on, on Fox nation, creating this alternate history of January 6th that will be the sort of the, the bizarro image of this story in the Washington Post that doesn't really justify its length because it keeps suggesting that this was a more designed, controlled, and um, thought-through event than the narrative of what actually happened during those 187 minutes or whatever it is they say that shows, which is that it was a chaotic you know, act of mob lunacy and that all this, all the chatter in the months beforehand involved, you know, guys in their basements fantasizing about doing things and, you know, not even being able to get out of their basement, bringing bear spray in their pockets and then the bear spray going off in the bus and making them all sick. But they, stuff they, like that. They are very deliberately using the same narrative tropes that are used to discuss 9-11. So the the chatter, the talk of the chatter, which was ignored, the talk of the guys in their basements, the, the, the very fact that it's being promoted on social media, I saw trending over the weekend, the attack. I thought there was like, I'm like, oh, someone's written something new about 9-11. No, it was about January 6th. There's a weird, I mean, that right. I think, I'm not excusing the rights reaction, but the equivalency game is being played pretty pretty straightforwardly, at least by a lot number of people in the media. I don't condone, you know, responding to that with with a 1619 project style reimagining of January 6th by any means. Yeah. But it's understandable to me that that seems excessive to people who actually remember 9-11, for example. But I think that's an important point you're making about the stuff that we're talking about, about the FBI, the characterization or the tone of the piece talking about the FBI's hesitancy in getting too deep into the weeds in the in the chatter uh which is a direct analog to post 9 11 uh reforms of the intelligence community where it was said well there was there would have been no way for the intelligence community to know that 9 11 was happening because a wall had been erected between domestic and foreign intelligence studies uh and the wall was too high and it interfere and it, it caused great harm to our national security and there had to be ways for those communications to happen and so the homeland security act was written and the wall was breached in some ways and this piece seems to be uh, i would say if it has a, a a purpose a longer range purpose it is somehow to liberate the fbi from its constitutional concerns about speech so that it can go after white supremacists the idea was that we could go after Islamic terrorism inside the United States because it was a an attack by a foreign foe 
uh, using assets inside the United States, and we therefore had the right, you know, the First Amendment protections do not apply under those circumstances. And the FBI's hesitancy, um, uh, you know, decades-long hesitancy, it's been 50 years since the since every you know every liberal in the country was outraged by the FBI's investigations of uh you know leftist uh, liberal and leftist groups uh counterintelligence um you know uh, studies of liberal and leftist groups in the 1960s and 1970s that is the reason that the FBI has this hesitancy and it just seems clear to me that the editors of the Washington Post and the people who put this together are impatient with the effort to protect First Amendment freedoms. And that is pretty horrifying as part of this ongoing effort to say that there are things that are more important than free speech. You know, speech can be harmful and all of that. Well, here we have the proof that speech can be harmful because they're talking and then they're talking and then two months later there's an attack on the Capitol. So, you know, uh, but I mean, this again is this illiberal liberalism where they are now becoming, they're now advocating policies that when I was a kid, they were in the forefront of opposing or, you know, or they now, they now support efforts to limit speech, um, that, uh, the protection of speech was the, you know, was the hallmark of, of, of a previous generation's establishment opinion here. Um, let me talk to you about. Uh, the chair that I'm currently sitting in, as my as my colleagues can see on our on our Zoom here, um, to the X chair, and from the first moment I sat in it, my body immediately said, "So this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like." I never actually looked forward to sitting in my office chair until I got my X chair. Because can can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's all in the LMX massage uh, and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons I love my X-Chair. Now I can't wait to be at work. And sometimes even if I'm not working, I sit in my X-Chair just to get that feeling. Take my advice. Try X-Chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back, I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. Um, all right. Hold on. I got to look at the my handy-dandy list of things that I really wanted to talk about. Um, Oh, so uh, another weird thing that happened uh, yesterday was that uh, CNN's Manu Raju, uh, their chief congressional correspondent, reported confidently that there were going to be votes tomorrow, election day, on the infrastructure bill and the uh, and the Build Back Better bill, uh, and they would vote on it tomorrow, and they've resolved all these problems, and and it's coming. Uh, and in an interesting intra-journalistic squabble, Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman's Punchbowl News, then said, whoa, hold on there, buddy. Slow slow your roll, fella. Um, the Rules Committee isn't even meeting on Monday, and that means that there won't be a bill to vote on on Tuesday, and no one will even have priced the bill. As there is no bill, there's no price tag. And everybody says, from the progressive's 
to Joe Manchin that they need to see the language of the bill before they can vote on the bill. So what on earth are you talking about? So we've been trying to puzzle together what on, the, what on earth happened here. Who told Manu Raju there was going to be a vote on Tuesday and why? To make it look like once again they couldn't get a vote together that they wanted? What's yes, ah, Noah? Well, Raju's right insofar as <laughs> the second half of his tweet was that progressives have given a lot of ground. Um, and they have. Uh, I don't know whether that we need to see legislative language things still hold. So I think that's Bernie's position, but I'm not sure if that's the progressive caucus and the house's position anymore. I don't think it's Jayapal's position. Last I heard last week, they just wanted some sort of a verbal assurance from Manchin and cinema that they were going to support this sort of thing, which hasn't been forthcoming. But obviously if they need language, legislative language is going to take a very long time to, to clear. Um, and all that suggests that this is coming from, I mean, as a guess that this is coming from leadership, because we had, we had talked about this before the before we started recording today, but Abe noted that uh, leadership has consistently signaled that there would be a vote on infrastructure that ne- isn't forthcoming. Um, and the language that you hear from Manu is that this vote is, is forthcoming again, and progressives have given a lot of ground to us. So the narrative is coming from the perspective of leadership and the and I guess the more moderates that they're trying to, to corral. And then Sherman came out with this statement from the Rules Committee, which... Uh, isn't it a direct response to it, but is probably, as you say, motivated by trying to, you know, put put the kibosh on some of this enthusiasm that they're trying to summon up. But it, the question is, why? Why would why does leadership continue to do this? If that's the case, why does leadership continue to signal that events are going to happen and they aren't forthcoming and it just looks like they don't have control over their own caucus uh, and nobody really knows what they're doing? Why would they? continue to project this kind of instability and uh, and suggest that there's a real leadership deficit here. Why? It, 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 is a, it is a genuine mystery. Remember last week, Steny Hoyer on Monday said there was going to be a vote within hours. Hours! There was going to be a vote. Number two guy in the Democratic leadership in the House. Hours. But I'm going to vote. Uh, Just briefly, the Tuesday deadline is, you know, is what they were trying to avoid, obviously, because it was always about Virginia and to a lesser extent, New Jersey, always. And they've given up the ghost by saying we have to get this done by Tuesday, obviously, and it's not going to happen. And they're just, you know, terrified. Well, last week, there was this idea that they're going to hold a vote no matter what to put the screws to the progressives, right? Like to to pressure them. I I don't really believe that at this point. There's. Because it just seems to, to me that somehow it's important to them to create the illusion of momentum. I don't I don't know right. why that helps them. Well, the announcement was putting the screws to progressives, right? I mean, it was, listen, this is going to happen with or without you. And then it didn't happen because it can't happen without right. them. Well, by the who, way, has, who has the power here? By the way, within the progressives, there is a caucus of at least three. And remember... Only three people have to say no for the for for either of these bills to go down, unless Republicans vote with the infrastructure bill. So, um, three uh, Latinx members of Congress are insisting on Im- Im- on immigration provisions in the Build Back Better bill, uh, path to citizenship for Dreamers, a couple of other things. The Senate parliamentarian has ruled. That immigration cannot be a feature of this bill, which is only passable, or I'm not only passed, but only can only be passed 
uh, as a budget bill and sticking other things in that do not directly involve the budget means they can't be there or they do not they do not uh, obey the <clears throat> the rules of re- of the reconciliation pro- process that eliminates the filibuster for these pieces of legislation. So what they're asking for cannot happen. So again, I think we're, we find ourselves in a position in which they're going to have to be bought off with something else or they're going to tank the bill. I mean, I, and, and this, uh, or they're, where they're trying to put pressure on the Senate parliamentarian to revise the Senate parliamentarian's opinion because it's too much pressure to put the Senate parliamentarian under. Anyway, it's interesting that Democrats, uh, would want to go to the mattresses. Well, it's only these three guys, but they're going to go to the mattresses on on the immigration issue right now. Really, I mean, seriously, when the news of the weekend is that the Biden administration is considering four hundred and fifty dollars settlement payments to migrants, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars settlement payments to uh, migrants who sued on the grounds that they were uh, improperly treated during the Trump administration. $450,000 per person. So say a family of three, a mother, father, and child separated at the border could get, you know, what is that? That's $1.35 million from the federal government. And as Tom Cotton pointed out, uh, if you uh, die in the service of your country, uh, you get $400,000 from the federal government. And not from the federal government, from the oh, so American taxpayer, from the American <laughs> which taxpayer, I think right. is so, what most people so read when they see I, that. I, I am not, you know, I, I constantly say this, I'm an immigration dove, not an immigration hawk, but, you know, uh, I I don't think I'm stupid. So therefore, I know that what's going on here is a absolutely horrifically bad piece of publicity for Democrats and Biden. Um, was probably leaked for, for that reason. with the Flores settlement, for behaving in ways that comport with legal precedent, jurisprudential precedent around what you have to do in order to keep minors in custody. The Biden administration is doing this exact same thing right now. They're just doing it in Mexico. Yeah, my question is, are, are they going to, is, is this money going to go to uh, family members who were separated under Obama as well? Well, it could go to anybody. That's the whole point. But, that, <laughs> it's, but it's, but it's yeah. not. I mean, that's, 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 that's not what they're saying. Abe, right. it's creating Noah's favorite thing, an incentive structure. Right. So guys, <laughs> permission uh, structure too. <laughs> our last sponsor of the day, ExpressVPN, going online without ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while you're using the restroom. Most of the time it's probably fine, but you never know who you're trusting. What if they're a kidnapper or a serial killer? Because every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, etc., your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, and it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to 1000 bucks per person selling your personal info on the dark web. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. You fire up the app and click one button to get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S of vpn.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash commentary. So we got to go, um, but uh, does anybody else have any... Uh, 
hilarious, bizarre, or uh, weird things uh, that uh, they want to bring up before. We... Uh, was that on purpose? Do I get to tell my weird, bizarre thing story? Oh, please, quickly. <laughs> so yes. I went to a Wizards game, as I mentioned on Friday, with with my kids basketball. and a bunch of their friends. It's a bas- for, for people who don't follow, that's a <laughs> right. basketball They were playing the Celtics. It was great. Uh, we won after double overtime by like one point. It was a great game. However, the halftime show was a guy named Kevin who balances things on his chin and not like a cup of water and, you know, a stick, but like ladders and wheelbarrows and a table. And it started out, we were all kind of laughingly mocking Kevin and his weird talent. By the end, everyone was rooting for Kevin. And I feel like there's some metaphor for our entire country and Kevin's performance, but it was, it started out hilarious and it became this sort of universal admiration for Kevin and his chin balancing uh, skills. So I just, so you're saying so weird. It was so great. <laughs> so you're saying let's go, Kevin. Let's go, Kevin. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> we'll be back with you tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.